We've been in a series that we've entitled Real Faith, Real Life, looking at this first century letter written by the half-brother of Jesus, who was quite a bit of a skeptic early on in his life, even though he lived and walked and talked with Jesus, uh, really didn't believe the claims that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah. And it wouldn't be until the resurrection of Jesus Christ that James' life would be changed and transformed and where he would make his uh, uh, confession of his faith to make Jesus Christ his Lord and Savior. Later on in his life, after his uh, salvation, he had become a pastor of a very prominent church in Jerusalem where he would preside over a uh, mass group of people and he would be used in massive ways to impact the church. We know he would die as a martyr uh, for his faith, and that brings a great depth to what we've been learning, that James really did live out a real faith in real life, even when the going got tough. And each week he has called us to live differently, not to just speak about our relationship with God, but to live it out as he did, and of course, as he saw it modeled in his brother his Lord and Savior, Jesus. And so we turn to what is going to be the second to the last uh, sermon in this series. And uh, we're going to be looking at the subject of prayer this morning. And I'm going to give you uh, a bit of a, a free gift. We're going to do points one, two, and four. I've decided as I was writing the sermon to take out point three. We're going to address that when we address verses 19 and 20 in a couple weeks as we finish out the series. And so you'll see it on the screen for you type A personality people that got to have every little spot uh, filled in. We'll give you the answer, but that will whet the appetite for where we're going to be uh, in the days to come. But let's uh, turn our attention to James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can find our passage on page 1000. And 13. This is what the word of the Lord says through the hands of James. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it, would, that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's pray. Father God, we just ask that you would bless our time together we thank you for the opportunity to open your word, to read from it publicly, to ask for you to lead us and to guide us now, uh, we pray, as we deal with a text that starts out relatively easy and that gets more and more complicated. Lord, I pray that we would see the simplicity of the commands you've given, and then in the difficult parts of this passage, Lord, that you, we would seek understanding so we may know what your will and your plan is for our lives. Lord, if we are suffering, I, I pray that we would be moved to dependence on you to seek your face in prayer. Lord, if life is going well and, and we are filled with cheer, Lord, I pray that we would be filled with great thanksgiving and praise for all that you're doing. Lord, I pray that you now would lead and guide us through your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. In our passage this morning, there are four imperatives. I'm going to address three of them, as I told you. But there are four imperatives that are important, and they come quite easily within the text. James tells us right away th four clear commands 
for his people. And the reason why he gives these commands isn't as a way of duty saying, just do these things whether you like it or not. Just grit your teeth and bear through the process. He gives these things to us because he says, when we do this, these are graces, these are gifts that God has given his people so that we may commune with him in in a way that's unhindered, uh, that is a way that brings forth blessing and opportunity within our lives Uh, to see the fullness of our relationship with them. It also enables us to have a real and true relationship with one another. And so prayer and praise and, and and having the elders in community with us in our times of sickness is an opportunity for the people of God to experience God's goodness and His grace and His mercies. No matter our circumstances, no matter our struggles, or whether we're celebrating or we're hurting, God has a word for us this morning. I want to look under the heading this morning. Before I go, don't forget. We're at the end of this letter. And as we finish up this letter, it seems as if James has a word for us, as if he's saying, hey, before I close this letter out, now we've spent a lot of time through this letter. Before I close it out, I want you to be reminded of some things. I prophesied about this because I put this together um, on Thursday, uh, the outline, and I prophesied that I was going to use this opening illustration, and I want you to know I'm a true prophet. Because as you know, uh, we have over 60 ladies that are on our women's retreat right now. And so we're missing a whole lot of people because so goes the wives, so go the families, right? And, uh, and our prayer is that the women would have a great time uh, in community, that they would uh, uh, really sense God's presence in their lives, and that God would move through the speaker and their community together to impact them, because that's what retreats are, are used for. But as my wife, as many of the other ladies did, as they left, this phrase came, before I go, don't forget. And I want you to know, when Amanda goes for any prolonged period of time, she always leaves lots of notes. And if you didn't believe me, I'm going to show you evidence. <clears throat> When we uh, got home on Friday, the kids had an early uh, dismissal, and she left as soon as they got home. When I got home from work, I saw this on the table. Now, I want you to know there was a fourth letter, but it was too big for me to take a picture of. It had all kinds of commands. And if you notice, one for Noah, one for Josh, one for Luke, and one for Tim. And here's the reason why. Amanda has very little trust that the children will be alive when she gets back. Okay? She, she's concerned that in her absence, there will be things that will be missed. There will be things that will be overlooked. There will be things that are forgotten. And I wonder if, as James was penning this letter, as he's closing out this letter, he's asking the question, before I go, maybe I should remind the people about this. And don't forget about that. And, and make sure you uh, remember this, that, and the other thing. In our passage this morning, I believe he addresses in our short little segment of Scripture every group of people within the church and says, before I close out this letter, I have a word for you. Now, I want you to know this morning that the first and second point are relatively easy. We're not going to uh, do a lot of digging in deep because the, the points are quite simple, and we'll see that in a moment. But it's where we get into the final point that becomes a little more hairy, a little more difficult because of some of the interpretive uh, nuances that are a part of our text. So I'm going to try to move quickly through point one and two. And then when we get to point four, uh, we'll spend a little time there. And so that's where I want to go. So let's look. Before I leave, what does James say? He wants to speak, first of all, to the group of people that he says, listen, if you're suffering, 
I want you to pray to God. If you are suffering, I want you to pray to God. Notice verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Very straightforward. If you are suffering in life, your calling, your opportunity is to go to the Lord and seek Him on your behalf. Now, beyond that, we need to understand a couple things. Because right away, as we interpret that, even in the simplistic uh, pursuit of trying to understand what James is saying, we have to ask the question, first of all, what does he mean by suffering? That word suffering is a word that speaks uh, of all types of suffering. Emotional suffering, physical suffering, financial suffering, mental suffering. It is, it is the kind of suffering that comes as a result of James chapter 1, the multicolored trials that are going to come our way. So all different kinds of trials are going to come, and when those trials come into our lives, we are going to experience different kinds of suffering. And what James is saying within the church, he's a good, solid pastor. He recognizes, hey, my church is filled with people suffering. Here's what I've come to learn in about 15 years of ministry here at Village Bible Church. While our way we do ministry may have changed, no, no doubt the church has changed. It's a much larger place than it used to be. Our staff has changed. There's a lot of changes to ministry. One thing that has been a constant since I started and since uh, to this point and probably to the point that I retire is that people suffer. The ministry is joining into people's everyday suffering and trying to find ways and opportunities to speak into that on behalf of the Lord. And so James is saying, okay, in this life, we learned this last week, in this life you're going to have troubles. You're going to be burdened. So be patient for the coming of the Lord is at hand. But amidst that suffering, what am I to do between the time of my suffering and the coming of the Lord? James says, okay, you're suffering. I want you to pray. I want you to pray. Now, he's not just giving some trite advice. He recognizes that the people in his day, some had lost everything for the call of God in their lives. They had lost their job. They had lost property. They had lost family members. They had lost relationships. All because they had acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So these aren't small little itty bitty problems. These are some big problems. And some of us this morning are facing some really hard struggles and burdens. And James's word to us is, we need to pray. Now, what causes us not to pray? There are two reasons that I have, have thought through that, that tell us not to pray. The first thing is when suffering comes... On one side of the pendulum swing, if you will, we don't pray because we think we've got things under control. And so maybe today you're like, listen, I know I'm suffering. I know I got these issues, but I'm working through it and I'm going to get through it uh, on my own. I'm going to find a way. And so we turn to things like money. We turn to things like jobs. We turn to things like other people and we try to figure out how do I get rid of this suffering? I'll go find someone else. And that's not an inherently bad But if it's the only place we go, then we fall short of seeking the wisdom that God wants. Remember, in James chapter 1, verse 5, if we lack wisdom, and in our suffering, we lack wisdom, because something has happened to our lives that's put questions into what we're doing, or why we're doing it. There's questions about the future. What does this medical report mean? What is this financial trial going to mean for us as a family? What about my kids, or my relationship with my spouse, and Suffering brings questions of what ifs. 
many times when we're suffering, we try to address those what-ifs through our own strength. And God says, no, I want you to run to me. And so maybe you're suffering this morning, and you've gone the route of, I'll take care of it myself. Remember we talked last week about the fight? That's the fight in us. Others will do the flight mechanism, as we learned last week. And instead of going to God or even to other people, well, what they will do is they'll say, I can't turn to God because if I go to God, he's going to be angry with me. If I go to God with my suffering, he'll say, well, your sin may have caused this or bad decisions may have put you in this trial or, or all manner of things. And so God doesn't want to see me. And even if he did, when I turn to God, he's going to yell at me. He's going to lecture me. And I want to revert again back to James chapter 1. In our suffering, if we lack wisdom, we need to go to God who gives generously without finding fault. And so we need to recognize God doesn't want to give us a lecture. He wants to give us grace. He wants to give us more and more grace to empower us and enable us to be able to get through the trial or tribulation or suffering that comes our way. And so we need to choose. Am I going to try to do it on my own? Or am I going to do it absent of God? Or am I going to turn to Him, to the one who will give me strength? Now here's the problem. When we turn to God, we love to talk about prayer. The church loves a good sermon on prayer. We love to hear about how God used prayer in the Scriptures. We love to hear about in church history how God has used great Christians of the past and how He's used their prayers to do unbelievable things in the world. We love that stuff. We love everything about prayer except for actually praying, right? And here's the problem. One survey was done by Christianity Today uh, recently that said the average Christian prays anywhere from three to five minutes a day. Now, compare that to the next question they asked in the survey, how much time do you spend watching TV, listening to the radio, or on social media? And that number went as high as five hours a day. Listen, in our suffering, if we're turning to the television, to social media, to other things, we will never suffer well for the cause of Christ if we're not turning to God. And so James is telling us that prayerlessness is a problem. We need to be moved and empowered by God Himself to pray. And we need to pray more than we've ever prayed. Now we need to recognize there's a lot to do besides pray. But what James is saying is the first priority in all our suffering is to take it to God and to say, Lord, I cannot do this on my own. Prayer at its very basis is a dependence on God. God, I am small. You are great. Therefore, I turn to you. Now, when we encounter suffering, James doesn't answer the question what we should pray for. And we need to answer that question this morning. So we need to pray. But now, James, what do we need to pray for? The Bible tells us over and over again of the things we need to pray for. The first thing we need to pray for, I want you to write these down because these are important. Here's your prayer list when suffering comes. Number one, that when suffering comes your way, you need to first of all pray for wisdom. We already addressed that, James 1.5. We need to ask God, God, I'm in a place I don't have an answer for. I need you to speak into my life. I need you to show me which way to go. Because we need to recognize we don't know what to do amidst suffering. 
We don't have the answer. So we need to turn to God and say, God, I need a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path so I know which way to go. Because in my suffering, there's a, there's a way that seems right to man that the Bible says leads to destruction. I need the way that leads to you. So I need your wisdom amidst that. I need your perspective amidst my suffering. So the moment that that suffering phone call comes, that tribulation uh, is put on your calendar on that random Tuesday, the first question you need to ask is, Lord, how would you respond to this? What is your wisdom when it comes to my suffering? Number two, I need to pray when I endure trials or tribulation or suffering, that number two, I would have the ability or the empowerment to suffer with joy, to endure it with joy. And what that means is that, Lord, I don't know why you brought this issue into my life. Lord, I'm not sure why this trial has come. I'm not sure why uh, you've allowed this tribulation to uh, make itself manifest in my life. But here's what I know. I know you're at work. Joy is the ability to see your trial as a long, dark tunnel. But joy is the ability to see the light at the end of the tunnel, even if it is a little small. To be able to look and say, okay, it's really dark right now, but as, as I look, I can see a little light at the end of the tunnel. That means at some point, this trial's going to end. At some point, this suffering will cease. Now, I want to remind you that there's no guarantee in this world that our suffering, our tribulations, will find their end in this world. Remember, we are to be patient for the coming of the Lord. And James says, listen, some of us may suffer for the entirety of our lives. But as Christians, we have a hope that one day, at the end of that very long tunnel, there's a light, and at that light is the coming of the Lord, where God will take us and receive us unto Himself, where we'll be with Him for heaven, where there'll be no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain, where He'll wipe away every tear. And so I've got to, with joy in my heart, say, this trial, this suffering is but for a moment. Notice the next thing we need to pray for. We need to pray that God's hand would be displayed in this trial. See, so many times we get the bunker mentality when the trials are being lobbed our way that we hunker in and we say, you know what, I can only worry about myself. But the Christian, the Christ follower, should pray when suffering comes, Lord, would you use this amongst my neighbors, amongst my friends, amongst my co-workers, amongst my family members, that they see my suffering... And they see how I'm enduring under uh, this suffering issue, that they may ask questions. How is it that that so and so can be filled with joy amidst such sorrow? How can he be filled with so much hope amidst so much pain? What does he have going for him that, that I don't? And hopefully that those times of suffering create opportunities for evangelism where we're able to share that the joy of the Lord is our strength. That we have the peace that passes all understanding that's guarding our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. God, use my suffering to draw people to yourself. We need to pray that God would use it in that way. We need to pray that the fruit of the Spirit would grow in our lives. You see, one of the things that we do in our suffering is we allow sins to take place. So we're suffering, we're hurting, and we grow bitter. We grow bitter because we're tired and we're weary. The Bible tells us earlier in the text of James, James says, be careful not to grumble or complain against one another. Why? Because when we're suffering, 
Uh, we want to make sure everybody knows we're suffering. We want to make sure everybody knows how angry we really are about our circumstances. But what I need to pray and what we need to pray as a people is that the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, and long-suffering would be manifest in our lives. That instead of, of looking and comparing our lives with other people who maybe aren't suffering, that we may recognize this is an opportunity to show the fruit of God's Spirit moving in our lives. We have much to pray for when we're suffering. And here, what James is saying is, when you're in pain, pray. When you're in pain, pray. Now James goes to the other extreme. And he says right away, if you are successful, if things are going well, he uses the phrase, if you are cheerful. That word cheerful there is a word that's only used one other time in all of the New Testament. It's used when Paul is experiencing a shipwreck with another group of passengers, and they're really scared for their lives. And Paul says, listen, be of good cheer. God has told me that I'm not going to die here, that we're not going to die amidst this shipwreck, so be of good cheer. Don't lose heart. And so if someone is there full of good cheer, then surely they're not suffering. Their life is going well. Things are, are taking place. And I want you to know this morning that within the dichotomy of church attenders, we could divide ourselves <clears throat> in different nationalities, in different ages, in different genders. But what James creates is this dichotomy between two groups of people. He says, here's this whole group of people that are coming to church. And what we've got is we could divide them between two things. There are those who are suffering and there are those who life is going really, really well. They're celebrating. And what James says is for the celebrating, you need to praise God. You need to thank God. You need to be just announcing to the world how wonderful your God is, that He is faithful, that His mercies are new every morning. And he says our response should be that we should sing. What this is is a person who's so filled with excitement, so filled with the joy of what God is doing, that they're whistling, they're singing, there's a melody in their heart. Now, how do we address this issue of this dichotomy? So entering into one church that James is pastoring, James says, okay, i got two types of people, the suffering, who are to pray, and the singing, who are celebrating. Now, we need to recognize within any church service that we're a part of, within any group of Christians we're a part of, there are those two groups of people. Now, why does God call the suffering and the celebrating, or the successful, if you will, why does He call them to the same place? Because we need each other in our lives. We need the suffering in the church, and we need those who are celebrating, are successful within the church, that life is going well. Why do we need both? Because both teach us about God. So let's start with, if you will, Sam the sufferer. Okay? So Sam comes to church. He's overwhelmed. He's heartbroken. He's filled with all kinds of angst. All right? What does Sam the sufferer teach the one who's celebrating? It's a reminder to the one who's celebrating where life is good. We'll call her Sally. Okay? What does it teach Sally, the one who's celebrating? It teaches us that Life isn't always good. Life isn't always easy. 
It's a reminder that sometimes life can be really hard. It's a reminder that sometimes life is filled with questions. It's a reminder that Sam the sufferer needs the dependent living upon God and His promises. And it reminds me, if I'm doing well, that I need to recognize that at any point in time, life is not guaranteed to be perfect or without concerns. And so Sam reminds me of where life could be and where I need to turn. But why do we need the successful or the celebratory? Because Sam needs hope. Sam needs someone to say, it isn't always this way. Things get better. God is a good God, and we're, our lives aren't just going to be continually filled with trials and troubles. And so as we're gathering together... Sam is singing the songs just as Sally is singing the songs. Sam looks over to Sally and says, why is she so filled with joy? What's going on in her life that allows her to smile as she sings? And the question needs to be, well, maybe it's her family life. Maybe it's the blessing of, of work. Maybe it's, and she starts to go down this list of the things that seemingly are good in Sally's life. But Sally looks and says, why is... She, why is Sam crying to the point of saying, Christ is enough for me? We just sang that this morning. And broken, tears are coming down. What Sam tells us is, is in our greatest hardships, in our greatest struggles, we can turn to the God who is enough for us even when success is not with us. Even when we can't celebrate, we have reason to hold on to Christ. He is enough for us. So why do we sing within the church? To be working encouragements to one another. We sing to one another and we pronounce the goodness of God to one another so that we may encourage one another if we're suffering, that God is going to be enough amidst our suffering, that God is going to bring purposes and His plans to fruition in our time of suffering. And what do we do when we sing, when we celebrate? We thank God each and every day for all the good things. Here's the reminder you need to have. If you're suffering, there is always, always, always reason to praise God. Remember Paul and Silas, they're in jail. They've been beaten, they've been flogged. Everything seems to be going bad for them. And in that Philippian jail that they find themselves in, they praise God. Why? Because there's much for us to be thankful for. There is much for us to give God praise for. But likewise in our sorrow, just as Jesus endured hardship and pain with great joy before Him, we have the opportunity in our sorrow to see God work in marvelous ways. If you're suffering, pray. If things are going well and you find yourself successful, praise God. Give Him the glory. Don't place the glory upon yourself. Those are simple things, okay? That brings us to the hard thing. Now, point number three, the one we'll address in, in a couple weeks when we hit verses 19 and 20. If you're stumbling, find an accountability partner. We're going to talk about those who wander from the truth. And, and I was going to bring it into this message, and I just felt like for time's sake and uh, for the theme that we're working through, we'll put that off to uh, verses 19 and 20 in our study there. But you've got it. You'll have a full, complete outline for the type A folks out there. So let's hit number four. That's where I want to spend the rest of our time. If you're sick, call the pastors. If you're sick, call the pastors. Now notice he goes on, and what was simple now becomes a little more difficult. He says in verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, 
anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power at its working. So let's stop there. So Paul, Paul, James says that if we're, if we're suffering, we pray. If we're uh, cheerful, then we give God praise through song. But now what about the sick? Now let's address this one at a time because we come to a passage like this in a passage that seemingly has a lot of nuances to it, and we, are, we run the risk, or the tendency, to blow a passage like this out of proportion. Now here's what we've got to be careful with. James doesn't dedicate a whole lot of time to this passage of Scripture. So what that tells us is, number one, James knows what he's talking about. Number two, the people seemingly know what he's talking about because there's no real explanation of what's going on. He says, just as straightforward as he was with the first two commands, this third command he's pretty straightforward with as well. We just don't know where to hang it, if you will, in our activity. So we've got to deal with this passage little by little. Now here's what happens when we don't always understand something. We impugn upon it motive or meaning that isn't supposed to be there. So there are two extremes that you can take from this passage of Scripture that I think become altogether unbiblical. So our friends in the Roman Catholic Church uh, would say that this passage speaks of the job uh, of the priest to go and anoint uh, people who are about to die with oil. They call it extreme unction or last rites. Uh, what this is used for is to prepare the person for meeting God, to get r- rid of all sins, to have their sins by the priest absolved and taken care of so that they can meet God, as if their standing before God still is in question. Now, we would disagree with that, and we would say, listen, that's not what the passage is, is, is talking about. This is not creating a new sacrament or a new way that we receive some level of salvation. On the other end, in the Protestant world, there's a lot of belief that what this is, is that this is an endorsement of universal healing, that we have healers within the church, and they lay hands and they anoint people with oil or some sort of spiritual or magical substance that's going to heal people. And you turn on television, and you watch Christian television, if you can call it Christian, and you watch people and they'll say, hey, uh, give me 1995 and I'll, pray, I'll send you this prayer cloth, okay? It's got my sweat on it, Okay. And, and if you pray this and lay this over, you'll be healed. Or, or maybe some, some water from uh, the Jordan River or the Red Sea, this, this has healing properties to it. And they'll take this passage of Scripture and say, there is something to an anointing that takes place of some material that allows for change to take place. We believe both of those to be extreme, outside of what the clear rendering of the text is all about. So let's render the text to the best of our abilities. So the first thing we need to do is instead of run headlong into speculation with a passage like this, let's ask some questions. What's the problem? Notice the problem is a simple one. Someone's sick. If any one of you is sick. And what does that mean? The word sick is a little bit of a troublesome word because in the two times our English translation uses the word sick, it's two different Greek words. Now both of them point to an issue of weariness. Uh, a incapacitation. It doesn't say what kind of incapacitation. 
Some have said that this is not a medical incapacitation or a medical weariness or a physical sickness, but this is a spiritual one. And so what they would say is that the healing that takes place is the restoration of one's life, spiritual life, back to the Lord. So they have wandered away from the truth, they're struggling, they're, they're sinning, and they call upon the elders and say, I'm stuck in this sin, I can't get out of it, and, and I need help, I need you to pray, I'm going to confess my sins to you, and I'm going to have my relationship with God restored. And there's some truth to us confessing, as we'll learn in a couple of weeks, confessing our sins to one another so that we may be restored, and that uh, the spiritual ones should go after those who wander away from the truth, verse 19 and 20 and restore those people who have wandered, okay? So there's some truth to that. But it seems as if the Bible makes it clear that there is a physical manifestation to this. The one who is sick will be raised up, okay? It's not simply that his sins are forgiven, but that he is being restored in some sort of physical way. So we have this individual who seemingly has a weariness to them, an incapacitation where they are no longer able to just simply pray for themselves, but the situation and the problem needs to be addressed in a much larger way. So what is this weak person to do? James says they're to call the elders. A couple observations. First of all, James assumes within the Christian community that you have a relationship with the spiritual leaders of the church you're a part of. And so there is this ability for you to call upon this group of men who have been set aside as leaders within the church. So if, if you are a part of a church and been a part of a church for some time and you have no idea who your pastors and elders are, uh, James says that's a problem. You should readily know those who are leading so that you can call in your hour uh, of need. Number two... It helps us to understand that our polity, our church government, is based on a biblical sense. So what we don't have, notice, is just one pastor. One pastor, one church. Notice it says, if any of you is sick, call for the elders. S means plural, right? Elder, elders, plural. That there's a group of men that are a part of each local church that are leading and, and directing the affairs of the church, who are shepherding and nurturing the flock, under their care. And so that's a reminder to us that the reason why we have multiple elders at our church is because it's a biblical thing. So they're to call this group of men, this group of elders and pastors. But notice the next thing. Notice that it says that the sick person is to call for the elders. Now in a culture and in a context that I would say is not completely um, exempt from our present company, our church has grown quite a bit. Um, I think uh, at last, uh, between 2004 and today, our church has grown somewhere in the neighborhood about 450%. It's a big growth pattern. And one of the things as the church gets larger is inevitably what will happen is someone will get sick and they will have someone come and say, well, why didn't the elders come and visit? Why didn't the elders pray? And so what inevitably happens is so-and-so gets sick, and so-and-so's in the hospital, and so-and-so's sitting there waiting and wondering, why haven't the elders come? And then when someone does come and visit them from the body, someone will say, well, hey, did Pastor so-and-so come? No, I, I, didn't, I haven't seen him. Hey, I got a question for you. When you were at church on Sunday, did they pray for me? No, I didn't hear them pray for you. Well, how about those elders? They're not doing their job. Well, the person who's not doing their job is not the elders, but James says it's the person. 
if you are suffering, if you are sick, then you need to call the elders. You need to make the elders aware of it. What James is saying is don't expect the elders to read your feelings, your mind, your emotional state, your physical sickness. Let your elders know. Now this is a good word for all of us in any relationship. If, if as, a, as a husband, I'm expecting that Amanda's going to know my every feeling and emotion and desire without telling her, listen, Amanda will fail. She's a great wife, but she will fail 99% of the time. My job as a husband in relationship to my wife is to be honest and transparent and open. What James is saying is church... Be honest and open and transparent about your feelings and your hurts and your pains to the elders so they can pray, so they can care for you, so they can nurture you, and they can be there. And especially when you find yourself so incapacitated, don't stay in isolation. Go get your elders. Go get help. So James goes on, what are the elders to do? So the elders have been called. They go to the individual, and what are they to do? Notice the phrase says they are to pray. They are to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Okay, so here's the thing. They're to pray, so they're to get together and pray. But then, and we could leave it at that, and we could say, well, that's no big deal. What's the big problem? It's where we continue to add parts to the equation. We are to anoint them with oil. Well, that seems a little different. What's oil going to do? What's the purpose of the oil? Some commentary said the oil may have been medicinal, and it could have been maybe during the first century, but most likely it really didn't have much of a medicinal purpose. Surely, if we were to use olive oil today, it doesn't have much of a medicinal purpose. Um, number two, could the oil have somehow been magical? That's one of the extremes that we run into with a passage like this that the oil somehow becomes this healing snake oil, if you will, that's going to, in essence, uh, drive away all the ills, all the problems, and all that. That doesn't seem to be the case. What seems to be the case is there's a spiritual principle, that the anointing with oil has nothing to do with the oil per se, but has to do with the significance behind the oil. It's kind of like how we view the Lord's Supper. It isn't that the bread and the cup have some spiritual uh, value that somehow they change and become something they're not, but they point to something of greater significance. The oil points us to someone being set apart for a purpose or a situation. So we look in the Old Testament, where is oil and the anointing of oil used? Setting apart a person for a task or a job unto the Lord. What James seemingly is saying is, I want you to anoint the sick person with oil. I want you to set them apart from every other member of your church and say, God, as elders of this local congregation, while we have a lot of people who are suffering and we have a lot of people who are celebrating because life is either good or bad, we want to set apart this one person. We want to pray for this one person in a very specific way because they have an issue that is so important or so dire that if we don't stop and address this, they could die. They could uh, fall away altogether. And we're going to pray specifically for that. And so the oil symbolizes this isn't just some run-of-the-mill prayer. This is a prayer where we are setting apart this individual for a healing to take place. The oil doesn't do the healing, but what, what James says is it's the prayer of faith. Now here's the problem, okay? Hopefully you're still sticking with me here. James goes on to say that when the elders do this, 
healing will come. Not that it might come, or maybe may come, but that it will. Now that's a problem, because when elders pray, it does not give us the guarantee that everything that we pray for will take place. So let's look at a couple things. First of all, it doesn't mean that you need to have enough faith that God will answer your prayer. What I mean by that is God isn't listening to your prayers and determining, if you will, on a scale, your faith. Okay, you got enough faith, I'm going to answer your prayer. Oh, you know what? On the scale of 0 to 5, you were 4.3. Not enough. Sorry, the answer is no. Just exhibit more faith. We see this a lot in the Word of Faith movement um, in, the, in the Pentecostal realm of, of followers of Christ. That's not what, it's, what God's talking about. God says we can have as little of a faith as a mustard seed, the smallest seed on the earth, and it could move mountains. And so it's not having enough faith in faith that will make your prayer get answered. It's something seemingly different. Notice the next thing we need to recognize. We need to recognize that it doesn't mean every prayer that is prayed will be answered. What it means is, I'm sorry, thirdly, it doesn't mean that we negate the use of doctors or medicine in the process. So we don't read this passage and say, well, we don't go to the doctor, we don't seek surgery, we don't do any of that stuff. So what in the world does this mean? What are we to do with a passage like this? Well, I will tell you first of all, here at Village Bible Church, we do as elders come together with people, anoint them with oil, and pray what we believe to be a prayer of faith. What does that prayer look like? Leith Anderson puts it this way. He says the following. Go ahead and throw that on the screen for me. You got it there? Okay. The elders of the church are to gather with the sick person and pray in faith for healing. That doesn't mean they have faith in their prayers. It doesn't mean that they have faith in healing. And it does not mean they have faith in faith. It means they have faith in God. The elders are to pray with absolute confidence that God hears, God cares, and God has the power to heal. If that faith is missing, they fail as elders and their prayers are worthless. The prayer should be sincere, strong, and compassionate passionately desiring healing, fully confident in God. So, the elders gather together. They have a sick person who needs healing to take place. The elders gather together to symbolize the importance of this, the setting apart of this specific prayer request. They anoint the person with oil. They gather around them and they they pray. No prayers that are different than any other. The prayer is though God... We are asking you because we know you can heal this person. If it is your will, heal this person. Here's how I would use it. And I hope this works because if it doesn't, then I have failed miserably as a preacher and as a pastor. But here's how I would liken it. What God is asking for is God is asking for us to join into a supernatural process. We who are finite to join into the infinite, which is the miraculous. We cannot do the miraculous on our own. We're asking God to do the miracle. But in order for that miracle to take place, God says, I want elders to lay their hands on individuals. I want elders to anoint these people with oil. So as they exhibit and show faith, I will then in turn do what I only can do. Now, to to illustrate this, I want you to bring into the couple, the married couple that is longing for a child. 
Now they recognize that God is the one who gives children. That they cannot create children on their own. But God has given, and I'm going to leave it at this, God has given a mechanism for childbearing to take place. Man and woman have a responsibility. God is the one who then brings forth the child. I believe that we are playing the part as that husband and wife do. We're playing the human side of what God has required of us. We're doing God. We're praying as you've called us to pray. We're praying in faith knowing you can produce an outcome that we can't do on our own. And when we do that, and healing takes place, we don't look to the elders, we don't look to the oil, we don't look to the sick person and say, what did they do to get it right? We bow the knee and praise our God in heaven. He is the one who has healed. Now, He heals through many different ways. My wife has been healed from cancer through the hands of medical doctors, right? Now, did the doctors heal my wife, or did God in His infinite grace and mercy use medicine to heal of us of all our afflictions? I believe that to be true. But I also believe that God heals people in the here and now through the prayers of righteous men and women. And what James does is he says, look to the life of Elijah. I want you to recognize this Elijah. Notice in the text, he's a guy just like us. He's no different than us. He had a nature just like us, and yet God used Elijah in powerful ways. So notice the text. It says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And so here's this example. The example is, is that when we who are finite, when we who are broken, when we who are struggling with sin, patiently and persistently and biblically go to the Lord expecting that the God of the universe can move mountains, that there are times that He will. And He wants us who are suffering and those who are sick to recognize that Elijah asked really for a whole lot, right? After fighting with uh, a wicked king and queen Ahab and Jezebel, he, he tells them because of their disobedience in 1 Kings 17 and 18 that it's not going to rain. And it doesn't rain. And he prays that the, the drought will continue and it does for three and a half years. And then at just the right time and in just the right place, Elijah asks for it to rain. And he asks on numerous times, persistently and expectantly waiting on God for the rain to come. And 1 Kings 18 tells us what transpires, that the rain comes. And he brings down both fire from heaven and he brings both rain from heaven. And here's the amazing thing. Elijah is no different than us, James says. Our prayers can avail much. So it begs the question to the elders. It begs the question to the one that is life is going really well. And it begs the question to the one who is suffering. Are you praying? Are you praying, not as a way of duty, but are you praying because prayer is an example or a manifestation that you believe in a God who is way bigger than your circumstances. You believe in a God who's way bigger than your layoff. You're bigger than a God, uh, you believe in a God that's way bigger than your cancer, way bigger than your relational issue, way bigger than the financial concern, that your God is able to address everything that comes your way on any given day. So this passage tells us to do three things, and I want you to write these down. 
What do we do when we read a passage like this? We are called to believe boldly. We are called to believe boldly. As believers, we must recognize that God is the God of the universe. And He will do all that He says He will. He will answer our prayers. Even when we don't get the answer we desire or expect, we need to recognize that God can and does restore broken bones. He does reverse devastating handicaps. He does erase diseases. He does restore relationships. He does give guidance to the confused. And He uses these things to grow in us perseverance, hope, and character. And He does so because He loves us. Do you believe in a God who can do far more than you ever could ask for or imagine? Prayer tells us we do. Number two, trust fully. We need to trust God's sovereign wisdom and grace. God will and does answer our prayer. But sometimes God doesn't answer it the way we think it should be answered. And that's hard. And in those moments, we've got to trust. We've got to trust that when we face a crisis that leaves us sick or weak, and even when we call upon the leaders to come and pray, we have to trust that God knows what is best. We have to trust that God is going to do what He will. And we don't need to fight Him on it, but by faith we need to believe and be obedient. We believe boldly, we trust fully, and one final thing we need to do is pray constantly. If we're going to trust God for the great needs in our lives, then we must prepare by developing them day by day in a relationship with Him. You have a relationship with many people in this world, and I will tell you that relationship is based primarily on communication. And the depth of your relationship is based on how much and how deeply you communicate with them. What James is saying is is don't talk about how deep your relationship is with God. Test it with the prayer test. Am I going and communicating to God? Am I talking small talk with God? Or am I sharing my greatest concerns and fears and struggles? Am I giving Him not only the bad of my life, but the good in my life where I'm praising Him for all of His mercies that are new each and every morning? Are you communicating with Him? Are you sharing your frustrations honestly? Confronting your temptations directly? And giving thanks for the blessings that you and I too often take for granted. Prayer is not a discipline just solely that we must master. It is a relationship that we need to develop. The Bible never ever says that we've prayed too much. The Bible never says, hey, slow down on the prayers. But it speaks often about our prayerlessness. And that's a word for us as a congregation. God is doing great things in our midst. Let us not in success focus more on our own abilities and desires and opportunities. But with every step of success or with every step of suffering, whether the good or bad is taking place in our lives, both of those things should drive us to one place, to the feet of Jesus in prayer. So my prayer is that you would grab a hold of this gift, that you would utilize this gift so that God may show you how great and awesome He really is. Are you sick? Are you suffering? Turn to God in prayer. Is life going well? Then praise Him in song. If you're sick and you have nowhere else to turn, turn to the elders who can come and lay hands on you and pray that you might be healed.